Welcome back to Walking Away from Arcadia. This is Simon, and Victor is here as well, and today we're going to talk about the other prequel to Changeling the Dreaming, Graceful Wicked Masks, The Fair Folk, The Exalted Period setting. Yeah, and to give a little bit of a disclaimer, because I've definitely had this conversation with, with people before, I've mostly read this book for how it informs Changeling. And I, I think Simon, you know, would mostly have the same thing to say about that. But we have both read second edition, Graceful Wicked Masks. And I've had several people tell me, oh no, the original book is more a prequel. This is pretty solid prequel territory. Uh, at least that's the feeling Simon and I both have. And the Exalted fans I've talked to have not loved the Fair Folk book quite as much. So... I didn't really feel the need to read a whole separate version of this, given what I was reading it for, which was mostly just flavor and informing Changeling. But just so you all know our background and where we're coming from with this. Yeah, and I agree with that. Like with Scion, I have a perverse like want to play this. But unlike Scion, I don't feel like this is a complete game. So I'm not sure it's possible. <laughs> No, I've talked with a number of people about that, and Graceful Wicked Masks, at least, is not designed for play. It is designed for NPCs. It is meant to be used by a storyteller. I'm sure we'll get into the details later, but some of the things you have to do just to fuel your powers stretch the bounds of reasonable role-playing. You mean I'm not supposed to be able to create a breakthrough freehold by enslaving 2,000 mortals and forcing them to build the bridge for a thousand years and then eating them? No, that's not really PC fodder. But, you know, on the flip side, instead of spending glamour, spending my ability to fake the experience of emotion just to do a charm, that's totally playable. <laughs> just, yeah, I. this book is an experience. <laughs> It is. So we should go back to the beginning. With a mess like this, we can try to make it make sense. The game, the game's narrative starts in a place that you can't talk about, because it starts with the thing that happened before the beginning, which is just pointless to talk about. After the beginning, there were the unshaped, and they were these big, empty balls of whim and wild stuff that didn't know that they wanted things because they didn't know the difference between themselves and other things and their different desires, which is not playable. <laughs> no, the, they do some things later on to make engaging with the unshaped, or as they call them, the Lords of Chaos, possible. But those are the unshaped in the Second Age, in the Exalted Age that you play in. And those unshaped are a little bit more shaped than the beginning of creation entities. The beginning of creation entities lack all bounds. There's a whole story kind of about the separation of things. And the Shinma Advita Iraivan... And that Shinma was really probably the most 
powerful Shinma, and the Shinma, there's this whole relationship between the Shinma and the Primordials and the Unshaped and these great sort of incomprehensible powers, and they talk about Advita Iraivan separating themselves into concepts and time and space. And in a way, it's very Kabbalistic. There's uh, an introduction to Kabbalah book that is based on Jewish Kabbalah for people that track the difference between sort of Western occultism Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism Kabbalah. This is the Jewish take. And in that book, it's it's entirely conceptual, no crazy occult systems, just the ideas. And it talks about how in the beginning, reality was all of the divine light. And every place in existence was everything that could possibly be because it was totally filled with the divine light, which is the possibility and potential of everything all mixed up together, always, all times, all things, all energies, everything. And then for whatever reason, maybe that was boring, maybe just wanted to experiment, divinity, God is somewhat of a limited concept, but we'll say divinity, decided, no, I don't like this anymore, and retracted all of the divine light out of existence, and there was a perfect void. And that was kind of perfect and wonderful in its own right, for its pristineness, but then the light re-emanated, but it re-emanated in shards and beams and shafts and refractions, and it filled the first objects, the first vessels, which were the sephirot, which then emanated out smaller bits of light that filled smaller vessels that were derivatives of the sephirot, and every stone, plant, planet, sun, solar system are all just parts of that emanation, and everything is ultimately just made up of the divine light in this mystical system. In a way, the creation with the unshaped and exalted is kind of like that, except instead of going from this kind of boring sameness into the interesting diversity of existence and that being a thing divinity wanted to do it's really presented as a mistake it's presented as introducing ignorance and shattering perfection and so the early mythology and the whole idea of the fair folk and the unshaped is really presented as atrocity of form like oh no how could you limit yourself and the fair folk, especially the early fair folk, the early unshaped in those those very, very hot, crazy early days of the mythic age, were not about that. They it was loathsome to them. It's it's kind of a weird introduction story. To me, it reads as very antagonist, which the fair folk and exalted are very much antagonists. So it's it's a weird place to start. It takes actual mystic systems that are viewed as positive, good things, and twist them around, which, I mean, White Wolf horror game, I suppose we shouldn't be too shocked by that. The moment of that that sharding of creation in Graceful Wicked Masks is the moment when the, the Shinma have all separated and recognized themselves and introduced concepts of difference into, really concepts of dichotomy into the wild and there's a brief like utopic period where the unshaped sort of exist in 
a liminal state where all of these concepts exist, time kind of exists, difference kind of exists, separation kind of exists, space kind of exists, but they're able to play with them. They're not rules, they're just ideas. And then a bunch of the unshaped would say, other unshaped, decided to make another difference and they made themselves, unlike the unshaped, they made themselves into the primordials, and they decided to make something with permanence, and they briefly disappeared from the awareness of the other unshaped because they thought they were boring, and then a nugget of permanence somehow came to exist in the wild, and ensnared a bunch of fair folk and turned them into what ends up being creation it's kind of implied that they become landscape and that act kind of sets the tone of antagonism between creation and the rest of the unshaped at that point yeah which i've always kind of struggled with that narrative partially because i find the atrocity of form to not be terribly compelling like i don't i don't find it to be that interesting the thing about the fair folk especially at this point in their development is they don't know how to feel they don't know how to be really and that comes up later one of the primary kind of cornerstones of characters in the fair folk are graces and the graces are sort of described as this is your ability to fake it you can fake feeling emotion. You can fake having motivation and exerting will. You can fake these things. And when a fair folk dies, assuming they're not killed by cold iron, cold iron is still terrible and will destroy them utterly. But if they die through any other mechanism, then something is created from their death. And it's not something wild and dynamic like they are. It's something permanent. Maybe you kill a fair folk and it will explode into a sea of flowers that will cover a valley. And then it's a new species. And that's how that species of flower was born. And it will reproduce and always fill that valley. But the fair folk is dead. What I always thought would be a more interesting take, not necessarily to make a whole story about this, but just to inform the nature of the fair folk hatred of reality, is... What if instead of all this conspiratorial nonsense, because don't care, what if creation was the first unshaped dying? And who knows how they died? I mean, we don't need definition in the before, before time myths. But what if an unshaped died, but no one had a word yet for grief or feeling or fear or hatred or loss? And... Uh, the other unshaped were so terrified of what had happened and maybe there was something almost like grief and they didn't know what to do with it. I think even though you can never really go back and retell that story, a lot of the world of darkness is built around, well, here's what happened. No one knows that. No one actually in world knows that that happened. But let that inform how you have the dynamics happen in the game. Let that inform why mages or changelings or vampires work the way they do. And I think that origin for creation, the first unshaped through whatever unspeakable 
atrocity, unnameable atrocity, because we don't have form or names or things we can name yet, but it died and created a permanence in its state of death. It's its own weird, like, first step in the heat death of the universe sort of scenario. I think it's a much more interesting take on that than what they actually present in the mythology. And I think it makes the Balorian Crusade, who are like the first fair folk that burst into existence and hate it, make a lot more sense. Yeah, I can get behind that. My reading of the the myth at the beginning of the game is maybe a little bit more generous, but not much. Um, it reads like somebody took a bunch of esoteric religion and then slammed it together with white wolves we have to fit the weaver and the worm in here somewhere and came up with the abomination of form in the beginning the story is very to me it read very um the story of brahmin and maya but it's very like this is the origin of dichotomous thinking like We're not making any judgments about that. It's just not natural. And then they slide into, oh, but permanence, permanence is bad. And like, it provides a tie to later stuff, but it just seems shoved in there. It does feel shoved in there. And one other thing about Graceful Wicked Masks on the whole like atrocity of form front there is this divide between the portions of the book that are narrative, so are talking about the world of Exalted, the backstory, the other exalts, the other character types, you know, the fair folks' place in that broader story. All of that content that I got through, and I have to admit, I read this book primarily with a focus on fairy psychology and informing where did these changeling things come from, maybe as hook ideas, so I didn't dive into it as deeply as I might have, But I did read most of it once. And the thing I noticed is all of that narrative stuff that's rooted in the exalted world entirely focuses on the atrocity of form perspective. It entirely focuses on fair folk who hate creation. They hate creation. And then you get into the character creation chapter and the Lords of Chaos chapter, which is the stuff that I I just inhaled. I inhaled that part of the book. And those parts of the book talk about these fair folk that are kind of fascinated by creation and are in love with creation. And it can still be a toxic love. It can be an addictive, I don't want to destroy you, but like, you're just so delicious. Oh, where did you go? Oh, now I'm in love with you. I mean, like, it's still presented as unstable, but they're, they present fair folk that are not invested in atrocity of form. And even among the Lords of Chaos... Lords of Chaos are presented to make them approachable. They're big, huge things, but they have emanations, which are more normal, fair folk-sized pieces of their personality that you can interact with. It's a tiny little piece of them. And they don't make up all of them. There's a whole bunch of the unshaped that aren't people, but like there are these little like keyholes where you can engage with them in a in a gaming sort of context. And it talks about how some of the emanations can hate reality. Some of the emanations can love reality, and an unshaped can basically be conflicted about whether or not they really hate or love reality. So this sort of concept of maybe we don't totally hate reality, maybe we aren't totally invested in this atrocity of form thing, is seeded all the way down to the unshaped, all the way into the Lords of Chaos. 
and it's speckled throughout all of the character creation section, and it's fascinating, never shows up in the narrative. Not addressed. It is the weirdest thing about this book for me. Yeah, there's a teeny little bit in the narrative where they start talking about, well, why are they fascinated with reality? And they start talking about how after creation comes to exist and a bunch of unshaped died in the creation of it, then they were all like, eh, whatever. And then they noticed that it started to change and that it wasn't static. It was just self-contained. They started to look at the pieces of it and they realized that they could lure some of its units out into the wild and that when they disincorporated because things deep in the wild can't sustain themselves if they're from creation that these you know mortals they lured out into the wild introduced ideas that the wild didn't have because something about humans was capable of dreaming and some dreams are a little bit more interesting than even the Anything is possible, but nothing has any meaning that the wild can manage. Yeah, and I find that concept really interesting. I also think the division between fair folk that are obsessed with atrocity of form and fair folk that are like, oh no, what is this thing? It's amazing, creates a really interesting dichotomy for the idea between the Fomorians and the Tuaha. And the other thing about that that I am a big believer in, I've seen some conversations recently about the Thelane and the Fomorians, and they were dreams of things before humans, and I'm not a big fan of that take personally. I think there's a much more compelling interpretation where the Fomorians, the Thelane, Dark Fae are born of human fear, and changelings as we play them are born of human dreams proactive ones like even red caps and slua to me they get presented as born of nightmares they strike me more as dark desire than anything else they strike me more as the person that feels like they are trapped and secluded in the darkness or the person that has the terrible hunger as opposed to the thalane which read as like the things we are afraid are out in the darkness and are going to get us. And if you track that division all the way back to Fae who were fascinated with reality and wanted to know more, and Fae who were like, screw this atrocity of form, the ones who were screw this atrocity of form, they hunted us, they were after us, they wanted to destroy us from the beginning, and we would be terrified of them. But the ones who were obsessed with reality... They're described as feeding on gossamer, which is kind of like glamour. It's what makes things permanent. Glamour is more a mixture of gossamer and essence. Essence is the raw stuff that fuels everything in Exalted. But that dichotomy works for me as a, as a throwback to where the Tuaha and the Fomorians come from. If you track that back, though, and you do use some of this as inspiration, the interesting thing is... The Fae that were fascinated and kind of addicted to reality didn't come after the ones that hated reality by all that much. Not really. I mean, this setting is technically the second age of man, but like there are still unshaped kicking it and the unshaped themselves can be conflicted 
and the fair folk that fed on and were fascinated with reality have been around for a while already it it gives you a lot of interesting things to play with in terms of like what has this misty remembrance lost the thing i love about that idea is a thing that doesn't really interact with the game they made very well but i'm still really attached to it in the rules they wrote the way an unshaped interacts with reality is by rendering itself down into a single personality and the system around that involves one of its emanations essentially usurping all the other one's agency and making them part of it but perhaps subconscious parts of it not the active part of it and then passing through one of the Shinma in order to give itself shape and then it comes into reality it has to have reality compatible nature let's say and so it creates graces in order to mimic reality compatibility enough to get by and the story I kind of always wish they would have done instead was that the unshaped that decided to interact with reality is still out there somewhere it just creates puppets to send in and those created beings are all maybe emanations maybe they're shaped difference without meaning there for me but they all have a tie going back to that single unshaped and they all reflect different iterations of the concept of that unshaped interacting with reality and i feel like that ties into the the imagery they created when they talked about unshaped dying and creating landscape and how some of them died to create reality and then you map that forward and what if those unshaped are still out there near the earth nearer than the wild is but also outside of it what is that space and suddenly you get the idea that maybe these highly formatted bits of the wild that you know had some hand in shaping themselves could be different aspects of the dreaming because the dreaming is distinct from the umbra and the wild but it's also adjacent yeah and that's basically how i've viewed the unshaped i read through the whole section on how the unshaped can become shaped and their emanations and the way it's described is an unshaped might be a whole region of the wild there is one unshaped that is trapped in creation and yet remains unshaped they don't explain how because white wolf and plot hooks but it's a city and its emanations wander through it and each emanation looks and behaves more or less like an actual fair folk a, a limited fair folk with a body that you might think of as a fairy and only the head emanation can walk through the shinma and become shaped and when it does the rest of that lord of chaos completely disappears and i read that and i went i'm never going to use this this is not interesting <laughs> like this doesn't create story potential the framing that simon used though creates all kinds of story potential i used an unshaped at the end of my last sorcerer's crusade game because they got wrapped up in a whole big fairy story because a character took fey affinity and ran with it 
and I put them inside the unshaped of Skaha. I found the idea that each of the houses was an unshaped to be interesting, that maybe each of the the kiths was an unshaped, and that each representative of that house, of that kith, um, might be one of those emanations, and that an unshaped could diminish itself as its emanations became shaped. But once you were shaped, once you became a, a, a sane thing, you were... You know, I, I think there's a little bit of something to be said for keeping track of the fact that that is distinct. But if you went into the wild, if you went into the dreaming and interacted with a Skaha, a Balor, um, a Clurican, maybe they still have a deeper connection to their source. Maybe they know things and can trade information and can more completely manipulate the story beyond themselves. I mean, I can see all the places where that would play out in the way I'd structure a story. And I think that's really interesting. When you think about places in the dreaming reacting that way, Arcadia starts to look a lot like a very large, powerful, unshaped that has emanated things out. And this gets into a lot of potential stories about how shaped fair folk interact with the unshaped, with the Lords of Chaos in Exalted. Because I think there are some themes there that you can tap and engage with in modern Changeling as well. One of the things that shaped fair folk and exalted do is they quest into an unshaped. And they go into the unshaped and they bring some of their permanence, some of what they've picked up in reality, into the unshaped and teach the unshaped about reality and give it maybe the potential for a, a smidge of definition without having to force it into this full-on atrocity of form. And in exchange, they're able to take some of the raw potential from the unshaped entity, maybe learn something about themselves, maybe change their nature a little bit beyond what they're even able to do as a fair folk, because as a shaped fair folk, they're still somewhat limited. I find that idea of questing into the dreaming to reclaim some of your dynamism, even if it's only temporary, to be really compelling in a Changeling the Dreaming context. I have used this plot point a lot, both in stuff that I've written for our Beyond the Mists episodes, as well as in my game session. But I love the idea of a Changeling being like, okay, I need to, this isn't working. I need to do something with myself. I'm going to quest into the Dreaming. And when they go into the Dreaming, they don't know what's going on because Remembrance. But as they get farther and farther in and they get into the Valley of Mists and maybe past the Valley of Mists, they begin to understand the nature of what they're seeking. And they can get to a particular region, a particular place in the Dreaming that is an unshaped, that is the unshaped they need to get to. And then once they get there, they can go through the same process that the shaped fair folk went through when they went into the unshaped in Exalted, and they can quest and they can complete the trials, which is all very Arthurian and very Changeling the Dreaming, and leave a slightly different fairy than they entered. And if they can avoid the bedlam that comes from going that deep into the Dreaming with their human bodies, they could still tap a little bit of that. Now, once they go back through the Valley of Mists, it will all be wrapped up in a fairy tale. It'll be wrapped up in a bedtime story. They won't come back with knowledge of the nature of what they've done, and that's what makes it Changeling the Dreaming. But if you as a player, or even just as a storyteller, understand what you're spinning a metaphorical painting to express, 
and that you understand that fundamentally it's about the struggle to define one's own identity in the face of a reality that limits that, I think that opens up a really compelling narrative. I see the stranger again at night, standing in the corner of my backyard where the redwood used to be. The person has no face, just an empty black oval filled with explosives. Their white artificial arms form an alphabet of deafening fire around my head. The next day, I see them in the shape of the trees outside my office window, feel their movement in the bubbling of Strawberry Creek, and I take an unusual lunch walk. I want, I want, I want, I want. The wanting is a gray bog beast that swallows me awake into the world, devoid of noise. The suffocating, safe coziness of my present environment rattles me. The planes and angles of this day, too soft for comfort. I press the metal of my bracelet, but it is not enough. I cut my arms with a knife and hide the scars, old and new, under sleeves. I break the walls again and repaint them with leftover bog gray that I dilute with an even uglier army green. Over and over, I take the bar to Embarcadero. But the person I seek is not there. Not there when it's nearly empty or when it's full of stalls for the arts and crafts fair. The person I seek might never have existed. An interplay of shadows over plastered walls. A co-worker calls to introduce me to someone. I cut her off, sick of myself and my well-wishers, always taunting me in my mind. In an hour, I repent and reconsider, and later spend an evening of coffee and music with someone kind who speaks fast and does not seem to mind my gloom. Under the table, my fingers lace into bird's wings. I remember next to nothing, but I do know this. I do not want to go back to the old war. I just want, want... So those are the ways that the fair folk kind of exist in and interact with the wild space that they came from, the ways that they interact with the, at this point it's not really autumn reality, but the, the reality of creation, requires them to put on faces and put on form and put on names in order to not immediately be calcified into a dead unshaped and so they diminish themselves and take on a shaped identity they take on a single person is kind of a weird word to use here but a single personality in a single form and in that process they use this game's magic system they use assumption charms to establish identity it, essentially this is an extension of the character creation process and you end up with a lot of what Victor was just talking about, where they go back out into the wild in order to either refashion themselves or to find somebody, an unshaped, who has the potential to refashion them in a limited capacity if they manage to play the shaped-unshaped questing game just right. There are a couple of little little strange assumption charms that they can use even when they're in reality to change their face 
essentially this creates freeholds. Freeholds is kind of in scare quotes here because exalted freeholds are wildly different from modern freeholds. If one of these fair folk, for some reason, decides to make a freehold, they put on the assumptions of lands, nature, or something like that. It changes the expression of that fair folk from being this is a person to this is a location. And that ties into the way, you know, they die uh, when they're unshaped entering reality. But there's another little story hook there just waiting to happen where some fair folk at some point, after maybe a lot of questing into unshaped and bouncing back and forth from reality and the wild, creates the first changeling, not a human changeling, but in an anime where they put on the assumption of the land, except they put it on and they retain their personality. And they don't just become an inactive facet of the world, they become an active participant in the world around them. And I feel like that's a little bit past like where Graceful Wicked Masks wants to put you on the evolution of the Fae, but at the same time, it lines up really well with the way Secret Way puts the anime as being much older than these meat changelings by quite a lot and gives them the capacity to act in prehistory in a way that also lines up with Dark Ages Fae's story about the Firstborn not being able to break down things that had fairies in them because maybe the first changelings were the anime. I think... That's a really interesting take that I think they built intentionally. I'm not totally sure that they built it intentionally, but it does seem to emerge from the assumption charms and the various narratives. The other thing I find really interesting about the assumption charms is modern changelings have a little bit of connection to death. You know, you have the Slua, you have the Karamat, you have the Pugwis, but there's not a lot there. Even the Thalane, and we've talked about this before, don't really have a death equivalent, but in Exalted, there is basically an assumption charm of Death Fae. There's the assumption of Ceramence and Bone, and it lets you feed off the dead it lets you go all the way into the lands of the dead and it seems like a precursor to the karamet the pugui and the slua it seems like a, a place where the black paths of balor may have grown from but there's just not a lot to it like in the one exalted game i played the other exalted players talked about how much the um, Abyssal Exalted and the Fair Folk hated each other because the Fair Folk were these manifestations of dynamism and life, and they always emphasized the life aspect. And I was like, this doesn't line up. And I went and I found this assumption charm, and I'm like, this is here. It has to be something else. And it's a, a thought that I sort of wish would get completed. At this point, I'd almost like a whole book on Death Fay that introduces some more kiths and some more concepts and just say, 
hey, yeah, this is a corner of the world that could be 10 times bigger than it is because there are a lot of fairy myths wrapped up in the dead. Even in Graceful Wicked Masks, the the whole story is about, the, the meta plot of the story is about the fae rolling into creation, having been invited by the Death Lords in order to wipe it out and restore the endless dynamism, but also boring saminess of the wild. And I think that's, like, I know some of the the source material they were pulling for their, their creation myth, but, like, the reason the reason reality happens in a lot of esoteric religious stories isn't, like, evil was introduced. It's, this is way more interesting. And I, I feel like they just kind of dropped the ball there. And I get it, that's a hard point to get across. That's why there's lots of religions that all kind of orbit around this sort of idea, but the idea that difference is interesting and limitless potential is meaningless isn't that hard to put into words. No, it's not. And it's something that you find a lot, the idea that our death is what gives our lives meaning. Because if we didn't have an expiration date, we'd just be bored because there'd be no immediateness to anything and that's a concept i would expect white wolf to be able to tangle with pretty well because it's kind of central to the banality of vampire the masquerade it gets talked about a lot although maybe not in terms that are quite that explicit all the time but occasionally they're that explicit about it uh, especially when talking about the tragedy of the toreador and their lost spark so i would think that would translate over to this well but i can't say that it really did Getting back to your friends who were talking about how the Fae would have nothing in common with the Death Lords, like, sure, but the undifferentiated reality of pre-creation is banality. It's boring. So getting back to the assumption charms, there's a little bit there that I kind of wish was a little bit more explicit, or maybe I'm just making the whole thing up, but all of them except for the Death assumption orbit around things that became epiphanies later. The land one, obviously the inanime, they, and the Nunahi, can both draw glamour out of the land. There's one for worship that theoretically lines up with the Sien, although in reality the Sien weren't developed enough to actually play on that idea. And then there's the one that draws, that draws essence out of dreams, obviously lining up with the fae that feed from dreams later and it kind of speaks to the difference in evolution isn't quite the word but development i suppose of the fae down the line you eventually end up with single beings that are incapable of feeding any other way but at this point in their development all you really had to do is wander back out of reality for a quick trip to unshaped status, and then you could put on a different assumption and feed a different way. The big difference within assumption charms for the way people feed is they rely on their graces. The graces are the things that allow them to emulate human feeling and emotion. They're also the things that conceal the rakshas, what's called a feeding maw. But in reality, you could sum the whole thing up as your strongest grace is also the thing that you find the most delicious, or you are what you eat. 
The other thing that I find really interesting about the assumption charms is you have the assumptions that sort of line up with modern feeding. And you have the death assumption, and then you have Mad God Mien. Mad God Mien is sort of, I'm an unshaped, but I'm in reality. I'm a concept. I have no physical form. I'm... It's very weird. It's compelling. You can use other charms while in this form. You can also become the assumption of, like, a human's passions. So there are the dreams, but then there's assumption of hum of a person's heart, where you almost become the changeling of their emotion, of their passions. You follow them, and you can mix and match the assumption charms. I feel like there's a lot of potential here to kind of build stories and what you'll eventually become. And it, it maps a little bit better to Dark Ages Fae, but I actually think it kind of maps forward to some of what the she were described as being before the resurgence. There are a number of modern changeling narratives and stories that talk about the shining host and having horns and different shapes and being all sorts of different things. And then they show up and they're just elves. I think the idea that they were able to layer these bits of identity on to each other and make something very different uh, kind of lends itself to thinking about the feature system in Dark Ages Fae, I think is really interesting. I like playing with the idea that the Fae used to be that way because it makes what they've become kind of tragic and like the abstract, oh, we used to be more dynamic. Yeah, but when you're thinking kiths, people tend to still think kiths. It's one of the things that's very off-putting for a lot of people about Dark Ages Fae is where the houses, where the kiths, where is anything. And if you really invest in, wow, this is actually how it used to work, it makes the modern system weird and unnerving in a way that I kind of like it being. And we should briefly mention, too, that um, unlike Dark Ages Fae, the Raksha have a strict caste system much more like the modern changeling system where you have commoners, you have nobles. Nobles were the unshaped who passed into reality and made a single shaped. And then the commoners are the fair folk that the nobles created out of nothing to entertain and serve them. It's a little bit less harsh than the modern iteration of changeling's feudal system because there's vertical mobility. A commoner could attain enough narrative gravitas to elevate itself into nobility, and at the same time, a, a, a proper raksha or an ennobled commoner could lose enough gravitas to fall into someone else's story and slip back into being a commoner. C20 kind of tapped that a little bit with their conditionality of who's the top dog in what situation. It's not quite completely determined by title, but it still seems a little bit more immutable than at this point in the, the story. The other thing that all of that kind of invokes for me, especially the idea of being trapped into someone else's story, is shaping combat. 
Shaping combat was an extension of shaping actions, which were part of the broader exalted game, but specifically in the context of the fair folk, the fair folk could just weave reality if they were in the wild. Like, oh, I'm going to tell you a story and it's going to be real. It's going to happen. And when you use shaping combat and you crafted the world on a non-fair folk, on, on a mortal or an exalt, if they could figure out what was happening, they blew willpower and they walked through it because it didn't really have permanence. But for other fair folk, they're creatures of story. They have to honor the story. And there's a bit in this book that talks about how in freeholds, in Raksha society, it's totally normal to just be walking by and throw shaping attacks at someone. It's just kind of how they say hello. It's just part of society. And you go in and you engage in shaping combat. And you try to forcibly reweave someone's story. And then you get bored and you move on. And it's no big deal. And they don't think anything of it. I mean, it's like... It's almost like thinking about the fair folk as the idea of identity is so mutable that the idea of agency can't take hold because agency is ultimately an extension of identity. It's an extension of want and desire. You have to have enough identity to have things that align with that identity for agency to exist. And the Raksha don't have that in this at this point in their development and thinking about a society that works that way is really unnerving. This also falls into the categories of, wow, this is not meant to be PC land. But thinking about that kind of shaping combat, that I'm just going to grab you and reshape your story. If you then move forward into modern changeling and say the Fae don't know exactly this is what they're doing anymore, but imagine that they still are. It makes a lot of she politics make a lot more sense. It makes the tension between the Kithane and the Nunyahi in America take on a very particular flavor of colonialism that makes a horrible, wretched sense. It informs the nature of a lot of things like saning and sovereign and why those things would develop the way they are when they're such agency-violating powers. And I, I personally think that it helps a lot in building politics. If you think of politics in that abstract shaping combat form, it really helps you build stories and see and understand what the Fae are really doing to each other. Not to put too much of a dig in on the other games, but once I started thinking about the she as working this way and building my stories, I looked back at Vampire and I was like, wow, that's a... Uh, that's kind of amateur hour, and that's weird to think about because I never thought about vampire politics that way. The other thing that shaping combat makes me think of, and this is putting a very human face on it in a way that I think maybe isn't completely compatible or intended, is in the beginning, in the exalted period, it was shaping combat. In the modern period, it's banality. When you're affected by a banality trigger, somebody has denied what you think your story is. They are trying to change the story you think you are. And I'm really attached to the banality trigger is a really good way to explain microaggression school of thought. And that's kind of what microaggressions are too. It's a rejection of self, sure, 
But it's also a rejection that the story yourself is in is valid. Why can't you be this thing I think you are? That's really valid. Viewing that shaping combat as banality also opens up an interesting story about the Dantain. Not the C20 Dantain, the original Dantain. It's always struck me that the original Dantain, not the way they were written, but the way they were pitched. So forget the dooms and typhoid marys and all that stuff. That works better in C20 Dantain. Let them stay in the cursed fairies. But the banal changelings, that idea that there are changelings that would wrap themselves up in what seemed like a ton of banality and it would be fine for them. That's kind of what changelings have always done. We are grand, unshaped things, unlimited by ideas and concept. Oh, now we're going to get addicted to reality and give ourselves shape and go into reality. And then we're going to limit ourselves and contort ourselves around each other's stories and pick consistent stories so we can get closer to humans and get the gossamer. And then we're going to wrap ourselves up in elements and then we're going to wrap ourselves up in meat and then we're going to deal with the world cooling and there's always this next adaptation this next story that can be wrapped up in that's a little more defined than before and i love the idea that the modern second edition style dantane the banal changelings that seem to be fine being banal are just a next step down that path and maybe someone else used the modern equivalent to shaping combat on them maybe they did it to themselves maybe it's just reality did it to them but similar to how the unshaped can even only stand the shaped so much like sure quest into me and bring me something but then go away you you, you make me nervous and it's that same sort of division between hate form love form the division between the firstborn and changelings a little bit in Dark Ages Fae, and then modern changelings and Dantain. I think there's a really compelling story there about what's just the next step. And seeing this pattern going all the way back to Exalted, I think is a lot of where that works for me. And so I think viewing this helps frame what that would look like if you wanted to explore that story. The other thing that the shaping combat as banality thing does for me, and it's on the Dantain thing, two is taking c20s banality can be a relative thing idea and putting that on banal changelings it's not that they are dantane it's that they do dantane the colonizing kithane changeling coming to america and in a real way waging shaping combat against the native Nunahi changelings, or even the native Nunahi true fae at this point, they don't think of themselves as a Dantain. They think of themselves as acting in their own best interest and taking control of, you know, their environment. But they're being very banal. Maybe even the she using Sovereign. It's all framed around being an aspect of glamour, and maybe it works that way when it's, you know, kept in the family because the entire Concordian society is built around this working this way, so obviously it works this way. But when you point it outside of you know, the culture that accepts this rule, isn't it just banality? What makes that she different from a Dantain? That's come up a bit in my game here and there. I don't think I've ever explored that theme quite that directly, but 
it absolutely resonates with me. I'll forget the trail I marked out on Mount Yoshino last year. Go searching for blossoms in directions I've never been before. Even a person free of passion would be moved to sadness. Autumn evening in a marsh where the snipe fly up. Let me die in the spring under the blossom trees. Let it be under the full moon in February. back to the beginning and to my tinfoil hat theory about the difference between the wild and the dreaming. The places where the wild still might be close enough to the earth to have a more direct impact are sort of our new frontiers, our modern frontiers, those being the internet and outer space where, you know, it might not be true in the real world, but in fiction, anyway, a lot of people push the ideas that outer space is a place where anything could happen, and likewise cyberspace. Cyberspace is a place where anything could happen, and at least in the context of Graceful Wicked Masks, the internet is definitely a place where shaping combat happens. <laughs> Not only does shaping combat really line up with the internet as experienced through the real world, when I read the second digital web book, the mage book, back in, I think it was a 90s text, it might have been a very beginning of odds text because it was the second edition one, it talked about an idea called virgin web, completely unshaped, unformatted, total potential digital space. And... Now that I've gotten much farther into fey lore, I'm like, I cannot fathom that energy, that thing existing, and the raw act of wild creation happening as much as it happens on the internet, and certainly happened on the internet back in the 90s when this was being written, and the fey not being there. The idea of an unshaped, of a broad realm of the internet the unshaped of social networking or the unshaped of MMOs or, you know, those broad concepts and the idea of emanation and the different manifestations that grow out of those ideas once they're born. I think that's such a ripe lens to view the internet through. And I think it has a lot more potential than the previous digital web attempts, which were really about, we're going to define the internet and the internet moved too quickly. And by the time the book was published, it was already obsolete. I think stepping back and thinking, what are the broad, like, metaphorical ideas that have applied to the internet since the beginning would do a much better job of giving you a mold and a concept that you could apply to the internet at almost any time and have it work. Yes, I really like the idea of using, not even getting as specific as, like, the unshaped of MMO, the unshaped of social media, although that one's a little bit more nebulous, but getting into the motivations that really the 
fair folk had in graceful wicked masks and looking at where they might apply on the internet today and looking at things i find to be deeply unpleasant like the unshaped of trolling collectives or the unshaped of obvious propaganda websites like what is the real feeling that that's trying to ape or invoke in somebody and then putting a feeding maw behind that that makes a lot of sense to me and you could put whatever specifics you want around it you could have it be you know a bit of 4chan or you could have it be those facebook groups that i don't belong to anymore or you know even god back in the 90s there was the god hates fags website with their chat room like all of these things they're particulars but the thing behind them is the same straight through i cannot help but think about pepe the frog and all the articles i saw about pepe after the election and that pepe was an instrument of this distributed high ritual magic conspiracy and the thing about all that was is you know whether or not you believe that the high ritual magic did a thing or not it was all accurate in as much as there were a bunch of people that used Pepe in what they viewed and believed to be a ritual way to get Donald Trump elected. That is a thing that happened. Whether or not you think their actions using Pepe had any impact, that was a social movement that happened. And when you look at how it grew up, how it manifested, you could take their word for it and view it through the mage lens. And I've certainly seen many people talk about that take on it. There's also a take on it where maybe that's a particularly insidious, unshaped thalane that has emerged and adjusted to excel in an internet space. And there are plenty of other emergent dynamics and trends and memes that have moved and risen in power that have largely had the internet as their medium. You could argue Occupy. While that was a thing that happened in a physical space, it wouldn't have really spread without the internet because news, like the mainstream news outlets, tried very, very hard to ignore it because there wasn't a good soundbite. Like, I don't think that was a conspiracy. There just wasn't a soundbite. It wasn't a recognizable political movement. So it was hard to pitch in you know, their news structure, but it spread and grew and developed because of all the other uncontrolled connections on the internet and then leaked out into the world. Viewing that through the unshaped emanating into the world lens and through the epiphany. So like if there's an unshaped and it has all these emanations and it has all of these things that are warming out through the internet into the real world and they're feeding off the inspiration while also facilitating the inspiration the entire modern changeling construct works surprisingly well when applied to internet phenomenon and distributed in a non-centralized way. And just realizing that that works as well as it does just has story wheels spinning. Even looking at the, the Russian interference in the American election thing, like I've read news from actual newspapers talking about how it was successful beyond anybody's dreams because they had put out, you know, call to action type things on Facebook and in other ways 
and actually had people show up in the real world when, you know, best case scenario, maybe they had, you know, an agent in the U.S. somewhere, but really all of the action took place on the internet and then it happened in the real world. That is a really, there's a really strong parallel to having an unshaped on one side and having emanations on the other side. So I'm just going to throw this disclaimer out. It probably should have happened at the beginning. I can already hear the conversation about don't blame real world things on supernaturals in the world of darkness. I'm just going to throw out there and Simon can disagree with me on this framing if he wants. I very much engage with the world of darkness through the lens of like we tell stories to process and understand the weirdness of the world. And that's always kind of what stories have been for understanding that everything even the supernatural things are metaphors for stuff we're trying to process that the intellectual parts of our brain maybe have failed at processing knowing that i'm coming at the story that way and that's the way i'm going to come at the story and a lot of what we're talking about here is in that model if you're not a big fan of that model for your role-playing games that's totally fine but we're going to talk about the world in these terms you mean you mean the Ventru aren't the ones to blame for everything? I mean, I do love blaming the Ventru for everything, but mostly Ventru players. Mm, yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's worth saying that. Her brother had not changed dramatically since he was 15 years old. In his bedroom in Wichita, he'd kept mice and played the music, his windows open to draw smoke away. Linny used to walk down the hall to his closed door, the towel rolled against the crack wadded beneath the door when opened inward to ask him questions. He convinced her he knew everything, that she could ask him anything, anything, and he would know the answer. And if he didn't, he could, and would, find it for her. For many years, Linny had depended on his unchangeability, his patient response to anything she was willing to ask him. At the end of high school, she turned into a snob, shunning her brother, flouncing off to college to be in a sorority and buy clothes. But a few years later, she'd come back, repentant, humiliated by her shallowness, and appreciating him anew. Now she worked hard in his church, among his stark array of used things. Pre-owned, he would say of them, not to feel sorry for him. He was heat-seeking when it came to deception, and her pity would enrage him. Besides, did she know for a fact it was pitiful, his life? Come see my projects! he said. But leave Rebel here. Stay here, you old nag. Rebel fell panting and smiling in front of the stove, as if he might choose to stay there forever. He lay on a braided rug Linny could clearly see before their stove in Kansas, one her mother had used for many years, one Linny had lain herself on as a child to stare at the kitchen ceiling, pulling the pale blue threads from it and running them under her fingernails. She wondered how John Gamble could endure facing these things every day. In the backyard stood a tangle of metal and tumbleweeds and litter. My rebar art, John Gamble said, picking the weeds and trash away and throwing them over the fence into the alley. He'd made crosses from rusty metal and a whole fleet of grave markers. One of my neighbors sells them for me. Cheap. Beside the crosses sat an upended spool table with a pile of broken toys on it. 
Barbies and sand buckets and plastic soldiers and cars and fat baby dolls with ratty hair and no arms. My toy art, John Gamble explained. I've been taking their pictures. Dad gave me his old Roloflex, which works great, really. And I've been having some fun. Hi, as John Gamble usually was. He could never be far from hunger. You hungry? So those are some of our thoughts on Graceful Wicked Masks. If you downloaded this podcast hoping for a Graceful Wicked Masks episode from the perspective of Exalted, I apologize. Our intent here was really to kind of talk about how this maps forward into Changeling a little bit through the sideways path of Dark Ages Fae. Not from a systematic, I'm going to drop a fair folk in the modern world, but just how to think about some of the psychology of the Fae, the idea of the Fae from their earliest root, and how, if that's where they came from, what does that mean for today? Because that can be a really nice brainstorming place. I hope, as weird as this got occasionally, that it was useful for you, and uh, Simon and I both hope that you come back for our next conversation. 